Now, we are in a series called What's So Fascinating About the Torah? Last week, I began this series. I want to encourage you, if you missed last week's message, please do go on to our YouTube channel and you can uh, listen in on demand what was spoken last week because it will really lay a good foundation for understanding this week, okay? And again, I want to apologize for those of us who might think that, hey, you know, Pastor Lip, this few messages, very cheap, very cheap, don't know what you're talking about, no? And I just want to encourage you all, if you find that you can't absorb everything, I want to strongly encourage encourage you all to go back and listen to these series of messages because they are not inspirational for you. It's not like there to pump you up. But I just feel like it's so important for us to get handles in understanding the Torah, the laws, because these first five books of the Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy, they are a huge substantial portion of the Word of God. And so many of us don't really appreciate it nor understand it, okay? So that's why I feel it's so important for us to look at this. Now, last week we talked about, I talked about three ways in which we may read these accounts, okay? The books from Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy. I began by talking about a linear progression of looking at these books, which simply means that you read the books in a chronological sequence from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And what it does is it covers the history of the creation of the the world, the birth of the nation of Israel, right up to the point before they cross the Jordan into the promised land. An alternative second way of looking at these books is to follow a climatic progression where the climax of these five books is at Mount Sinai where God makes a covenant with His people Israel. We talked about this last week and how this really is a shadow of the true mountain that God wants us to come to and that is Mount Zion where God no longer writes His laws on the tables of stone but on the tables of our hearts. Amen. And finally, I talked about how when you read these five books, you will observe that there are many events that are uh, like, like similar to one another. I call this the parallel progression where mirrors Uh, where events mirror each other, but yet there are small differences that convey a huge understanding for us about who God is and what are His ways. The psalmist in Psalms 119 verse 18 says this, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. And I want to encourage us, if you read the laws of God and it doesn't fascinate you, then there is something that is still veiled in your eyes. You don't fully understand this, okay? Now, this next passage of Scripture from Psalms 19 verse 7 to 9, I want to read to you. This almost sounds like some advertising for some miracle medicine, okay? Yep, and let me read this to you. In Psalms 19 verse 7 and 9, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. I mean, doesn't that sound like some miracle medication that you can take, some miracle product? The moment you eat of this thing, man, your soul is going to be converted. Your eyes are going to brighten up. There's something that brings rejoicing. And if you're simple, it will give you wisdom. What is this? I want it, okay? And yet all this is found in the laws, in the Torah. There's so much hidden in God's laws that we cannot afford as Christians to neglect an understanding of them. The problem though for us in the New Testament and for many Protestant Christians is that we brush aside the law and we say, oh, grace, grace, we live in the age of grace. Who cares about the laws? And what it does is there is a laziness that seeps into our Christian walk whereby we believe that everything has been done for us and we don't need to do anything else anymore including studying God's Word. Now, in the context of our salvation, it is true, Jesus has done 
what we could never do for ourselves. He paid for our sins. It is His blood that makes us righteous. Amen? And there is nothing that you can do. It's not by the pursuit of the law that we can become righteous. It's only in the pursuit of Christ that His righteousness comes on us. Amen? But nonetheless, the law contains a wealth of understanding concerning who is God. What is His ways? And we must never be reductive whereby we reduce the laws to a simple set of do's and don'ts instead of seeing the Torah as an entrance to a wonderful place of knowing our God. Now this weekend, in, um, unlike what we did last week where I gave you an overview of these five books, I want to talk about some specific laws. And I don't just mean the Ten Commandments, okay? There are 613 commandments included for us in the Torah. Think about that, 613. Some of you are thinking, man, this is so Old Testament. What's the point? 613? Huh? I must follow so many rules, huh? At home, my wife already gave me enough rules, you know. And I want to assure you that, you know, it's not about more things to obey, but I want to just give us a simple framework so that the next time you look at one of these commandments, you don't just brush it aside and say, ah, uh, Old Testament. But you would start thinking, hey, there is something fresh about this. I want to begin by looking at the Ten Commandments because this is the focal point. This is where every one of us is familiar with, but I want to touch on it very quickly. And I want to say that the Ten Commandments is not just a moral code for our own personal lives. It is a foundation for society and for civilization. You see, here in Cornerstone, I wanted to assure you this, that we want every one of us here in Cornerstone to have a love and an appreciation for Ten Commandments. I want to encourage all of you, if you don't have the Ten Commandments hanging somewhere in your house, go to Faith Words. I've said this many times. Go buy a set of the Ten Commandments on a plug and put it somewhere. Memorize it. Know it. When you look at it, ponder about it, okay? Because I'm going to open your eyes to the Ten Commandments. So here's the Ten Commandments very quickly. The first, you shall have no other Lord. You shall have no other God but the Lord. Amen? And number two, you shall not make for yourself, nor worship idols. Number three, you not use the Lord's name in vain. Number four, keep the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother is number uh, five. Number six, do not murder. Number seven, do, uh, num- number seven is uh, do not commit adultery. Number eight, do not steal. Number nine, do not bear false witness. And number ten, do not covet. Now, we all know this. The first four commandments relates to our relationship with God. And let me say this, this is very, very important. It is so important that if you don't have these first four commandments, the rest of the commandments really don't matter. You see, the issue with laws is this, a law is only effective if it is enforceable. If you cannot enforce the law, the law is kind of like nobody bothers, right? Are there laws in Singapore that nobody enforces? Are there? You bet there is. How many of you, when you sit in the car back seat, you put on your seatbelt all the time? Right? It's a law. You must put on your seatbelt, but nobody enforces it. So what? Nobody does it. Right? And that's the nature of the law. Right? A law is, you know, you know natural and earthly legislation, judicial systems, they have a limit in its ability to police everyone. The government, the police, they cannot police you every moment of the day. Amen? And that is why if your reference point, you know, is just the law and obeying the law and the law of the land, then it is very limited. If our compass is that we believe that as long as we're not caught, okay, that we can escape, then we will do something wrong. We would skip around the law. That's our nature, okay? So please don't look at your neighbours and nudge them because we are all guilty of this. 
But when you establish the first four commandments in the beginning, what we are doing is we are putting God as our reference point. Now, when you put God as your reference point, there is no escaping. He sees you every moment. He doesn't just see you in what you, de- what you do. He sees you in what you think and what is your motive. Heaven doesn't miss a single beat. That's why these first four commandments are important because it sets our orientation and compass to be committed to a God, not just of heaven, but a God of earth. And that makes the rest of the commandments relevant because now you know God is going to enforce it. The Bible says that not even an idle word that proceeds from your mouth will, you know, that you will be able to run away with. Why is it that Jesus says that if you were to look at somebody lastly and you have committed adultery because he doesn't just see the action, he sees the thoughts inside of us. Amen? Now, the next six commandments then are really very, very important as well, okay? And, 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 uh, and we got to realize the magnitude of these 10 commandments is tremendous. I'm telling you, there is a brilliance in these 10 statements that far, that far, you know, uh, uh, that supersedes, that's more superior, that's more fantastic than the Magna Carta, than the Constitution of the United States of America. This is an amazing 10 statements. If you examine these next six commandments, it's incredible. God creates value through these six statements. He gives us the right of ownership. He draws boundaries that we should not transgress. He establishes the basis of the family unit and where the responsibility lies. There is a foundation for a justice system amongst many other things. Now, when you look at these commandments, I want to encourage you, look past just what it says about do and don't. Understand its impact on human society. And that's why you put it up because you, I'm telling you, you can contemplate these 10 statements a lifetime and you'll still draw new truths out of it. Yep. Now, that's all I want to say about the Ten Commandments. The next one is, is, the, is the subject matter that I want to dwell on most, okay? And I want to begin by saying this statement. The, the laws that's given to, um, to us in the Old Testament comes to us in a seed form, okay? And when you understand what is a seed, okay, it just simply means that it is not fully grown. It is just the beginning. And the seed is just a small representation of what it eventually can become. A seed has the capacity to germinate, to grow into a full state of maturity. Now, Jesus helps us to understand this when he talked about the kingdom of God and he described the kingdom of God as a mustard seed, small as it might be, but it grows. And when it is fully mature, the manifestation of that seed will look very different, not just in size, but in substance. That's the nature of trees. That's the nature of seeds. And again, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord alludes to this when He upgraded the commandments from the Old Testament and showed us what it is like when the commandments in the Old Testament comes into full-blown maturity. You don't need to commit adultery with somebody else. All you need to do is look with lust and you have committed adultery. The full-blown state of the law is not just legislating our behavior. It is changing our character. It deals with lust on the inside. The fullness of the law is not just about not committing murder, but it is to have mastery over our anger. Amen? So when that law was given, it deals with an outward behavior, but the real issue, the full maturity of it, is a transformation of the person. Amen? I want, to sh- I want to show you one verse in Exodus 23, verse 4 to 5. And this one we don't talk about very often. But it is so related to what Jesus tackles in the Sermon on the Mount. In these two verses, it says this. If you meet your enemy's ox, remember the word enemy, your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, 
you shall surely bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, someone who hates you, lying under its burden, you would ref- and, and you would refrain from helping it, no, you should surely help him with it. You see, the Old Testament is amazing because the Old Testament is so different. It doesn't actually call for a reconciliation with your enemies nor with those who hate you. Because the Old Testament understands its limitation. Its only requirement is for you to act in decency. Its only requirement is for you to act in what is right and what is decent for a human being to do. But guess what? Jesus' requirement is different. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, He says that you are to love your enemies. You are to bless those who curse you. You are to do good to those who hate you and to pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. The demand, the full maturation of the law is far greater in its magnitude and it is only possible in the New Testament because only in the New Testament do we receive a new nature in Christ Jesus. You cannot do this. You cannot love your enemies. You have no capacity to do it until the seed of Christ is inside of you. And that's a transformation between the Old Testament and New Testament because the full maturity of the Old Testament laws cannot see its fulfillment until you come into the New Testament. Now, I want to cover a couple of practical laws in the Old Testament. The first one is slavery. Now, when you consider the Old Testament, you've got to know this. The Old Testament permits slavery. Okay, and the portions of Scripture that, uh, that govern slavery is found in Exodus 21, Leviticus 25, and Deuteronomy 15. But when you look at this, right, the, the, on the surface you would say to yourself, people might say this, wow, you know this Bible is not very good, huh? how come can have slavery? Why does it give permission for slavery? But I want to take us through a different perspective because you've got to understand this, that slavery was a common practice in the times of Moses right up to the times of Jesus. Because in the Roman Empire, slavery was still pretty much practiced. In fact, slavery was still practiced right into our, um, you know, into, into the, you know, into the ni- uh, 1900s, right? And, uh, but the issue was this, that in those days, slavery was so common, there are really no rules governing slavery. Slaves were the pure and absolute property of their owners, and they have no rights whatsoever. And here comes the Torah, And the Torah constitutes some laws and rules about slavery that nobody ever thought about. Nobody ever instituted that slavery required rules. And when the Torah gives the rules of slavery, there are several things that are made clear. There is a time frame to the slavery. You cannot have a slave perpetually. There is a point where you need to set them free. And not only that, the slaves have rights. They must be given a Sabbath just as you enjoyed the Sabbath. Because just as you are a creation made in God's image, so is the slave. Deuteronomy 24, 14 forbids us from, uh, you know, from oppressing our servants and our slaves. Now, you've got to set yourself back in that context because it is a very different system that was being practiced by the rest of the nations. And all of a sudden, in Israel, if you are a slave, you are not a slave like the rest of the world. There's a different system. There's a maximum term of service. There is freedom that's to be set. There is supposed to be proper remuneration given back to the slaves when their, when their term is completed. Now, when, when the Lord does something so different, it must catch our eyes. We've got to understand why does God do things so differently from the rest of the world? And you need to see that the law that was being given was really given only in seed form. 
It is to cause the people to, to, to see the prevalent practices of the world in a different way. It was, called, it was to make God's people think uh, very, very differently. You see, think about this. If you were a slave owner practicing slavery at that time, what God was doing through the law, He was embedding inside of you a seed that would germinate so that you begin to look at your ser- servants and your slaves forever. You will begin to see that, hey, they have rights. You were to, it was supposed to cause you to think that, hey, they are created by God just, that you, just as you were created. They were supposed to remind you on the day that you set your slaves free, what a joy in that moment would be and remind you that, hey, you were in, uh, a slave in Egypt as well and God set you free. You see, all the law does, it is initiates a thinking pattern that will cause us to come to the maturity, the fullness of that law. And the fullness of the law of slavery in the Old Testament is the abolition of all slavery. You understand this? Do you catch this? This is the remarkable thing about the Torah law. And that's why the Torah law is so different in its expression and its practice. You see, the Bible, God knows that it takes time to transform people. It takes time for society to change. And so God doesn't come in and change everything instantaneously. Instead, He comes and He plants a seed. And in the process of doing it, something stirs. You begin to think, hey, why am I doing this? Why does the law say this? Why is it so different? Why do we run a system that's different from the rest of the world? By the time you reach the book of Philemon in the New Testament, Paul establishes this for us. Because the book of Philemon or the letter of Philemon is simply this. Paul was writing to Onesimus. And Onesimus once had a slave called Philemon, and Philemon ran away from Onesimus, and he got saved, he got born again, he started serving with Paul. And now Paul was going to send Philemon back to Onesimus, and in verse 16 he says this, that you might receive forever no longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. You see, whenever we look at the Torah, I guarantee you this, you'll find many unusual laws that wasn't common practice in those days. And the reason is because God is planting a seed. Amen? God is, is, is leading us in practicing the law to feel a bit uncomfortable, a bit unusual, to make us think a little more. Now, the next one I want to talk about is going to be a little bit more controversial, okay? And again, I want to qualify this. This is my thought, my opinion, and this is my reading of, of, of the Word of God. Please don't write to me and contest with me about this. I'm not going to answer any emails in regards to this, okay? And this next subject is capital punishment, okay? Because many Christians simply default to a stand whereby we are proof of capital punishment. And the reason we do so is, hey, there's capital punishment in the Old Testament. The law permits capital punishment. Israel had capital punishment. But what you need to realize is that in Leviticus 20, we have a sense, okay? There are many other passages that talks about capital punishment in the Old Testament, and, but the, the prescribed method of capital punishment is what is so unusual, okay? And the way Israel executes people is by stoning, right? Take a stone, but what is unusual is that the whole congregation must participate in the execution. And you've got to ask yourself, why? Because I, I did an extensive study on, um, on capital punishment throughout history. And let me say this, okay, there are no other systems that follows a capital punishment system like that. All capital punishment is always an executed and an executioner. In fact, in history, most times, public executions were a spectacle. They were the movie of the moment. They were the show in town. They were the circus, 
right? They will put out publicity to say, on this day, we're going to execute how many people? And they'll actually describe in lurid description how they were going to kill the person and torture the person. And the more explicit it is, the more crowd it will attract. And historical record tells us this, people will show up 5 a.m. in the morning to find the best sitting spot so they can have a good look at the public execution. It was a spectacle. But yet here in the Old Testament, when it prescribes execution, it was a responsibility of the whole congregation. Now, in the United States of America, there's something called jury duties, right? If you're a citizen of America, when the ballot box is picked and your name comes up, you have to go and fulfill jury duties. Can you imagine if we practice execution like how the Old Testament prescribes? When Singapore is going to execute somebody, we, they'll pick lots. 50 Singaporean citizens must fulfill national duty to come forward and stone the person to death. Can you imagine what that does to an individual? Have you ever take, taken the laws in the Torah and actually put yourself in it and wonder to yourself what it feels like? You see, what happens is that the act of taking life would soon become something that the people would not be able to stomach. It would become so repulsive the law of capital punishment made, made, made it very uncomfortable for the people and for the nation. You know, so much so that by the time Jesus came on the scene, the Jewish people had already concluded that the full maturation, the fullness of the law is that there will be no more capital punishment. That's why when they wanted to kill Jesus, they couldn't kill him. They had to send him to the Romans because the Romans would permit capital punishment. You see, one of the most poignant accounts in the Bible is when they brought a woman caught in adultery before the Lord Jesus. And they said to, this, to Jesus, he says, should we stone her or not? Sometimes we look at this and as, you know, as non-Jewish people, we don't understand this because we don't look at the Torah. The major contest between the, uh, Jesus and the Pharisees was over the validity, the, 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 the authority of the written word of God versus the authority of the traditions of the Pharisees. Jesus was always saying the, the written word of God has the highest authority over the traditions of the Jewish people. But the Jewish people not say, no, our tradition is more important than the written word of God. And this is what this contest is because the Jewish people, the Pharisees brought this woman caught in adultery and they said to Jesus, hey, you say the law has to be taken at face value? You say the law is the authority? Then according to the law, we must stone this woman. But if you give her mercy and you don't stone her, then you are agreeing with us, the Pharisees, that our traditions have come to the conclusion there's no more capital punishment. You see, this is the conundrum that they put Jesus in. It was a deep theological fix that they put Jesus in. It was a trap that was very, very hard to come out with because their conclusion on the abolition of capital punishment was correct. They rightly understood it. How did Jesus defeat this? Jesus was brilliant. He said to them, let the one without sin be the first to cast a stone. You see, as you stand to execute this, the thing that dawns upon you is that I... I've committed these things as well, just that I've not been caught. I'm not without sin. You see, the, the, the understanding of that law in the Old Testament is to bring us to a place to say, hey, actually, I'm not qualified to throw the stone. And Jesus says the only person that is qualified to cast that stone on one that is guilty is someone who is totally not guilty. The man or the woman who's without sin, he or she has the right to cast a stone. And therefore, nobody can do it except Jesus, because he's without sin. And yet, at the end of it, Jesus said, there's no one condemn you, neither do I go and sin no more. 
That's the brilliance of the Lord. And the Lord, can, you know, the Lord validates that conclusion without changing the understanding that the authority is not in the traditions that we come up, but in the written Word of God. Amen? And that's the thing. So again, please don't write to me about this, okay? My purpose, you can disagree, you can agree, whatever it might be. My purpose of sharing with this, this with you is so that you can see that there, is a, that there is a need for a deeper understanding of the law. And, and for us to understand that the law in the Old Testament is not static. Because if it is static, most of it will not make any sense whatsoever. But there is a maturation of it which makes it relevant even for our days in understanding how we are to approach issues uh, presently. Now, finally, i got a couple of minutes left. I want to finish this off, okay? The third thing about the law is that the laws really conveys our struggles. There is an interesting law that um, really helps us to understand this, and that's found in number six. But the law of the Nazarite goes like this. If you want to take a vow of Nazarite for a season of your life, you can, okay? A month, three months, six months, time frame is not set, but you can be a Nazarite. But if you take a vow of a Nazarite, then you must separate yourself during this time of your vow. No alcohol, nothing to touch with grapes, no going near a vineyard, nothing unclean should come close to you. You cannot go close to a dead body. Even if your own personal relatives passed away, you cannot go. Not only that, you cannot cut your hair as a sign of your separation. You were supposed to live a very a monastic life during this period of time. What is most interesting about this law is that at the end of your vow, as you come to the conclusion of the law, of, uh, of vow, you must give an offering, a sin offering. Now, that's strange. You think that's strange? No, you never thought about it. That's really strange. If you have given six months to the Nazarite vow, by the end of the six months, you would be in the most holy state of your life. Right? If you have fulfilled the Nazarite vow in three months or whatever, I mean, you would be in the most consecrated state ever in your life because you have given three whole months to seek God but, and, and God alone and nothing else. Why must you give a sin offering? What did you sin? What did you do? Now, that in itself produces for us an issue of uncertainty that we need to examine and it conveys to us a powerful understanding of the struggles that we all go through. You see, the Jewish society understands this. There is a big difference between a saint and a sage. A saint is someone who separates himself or herself to God. And the nature of separation requires for us to withdraw ourselves from people, from the affairs of the world, from things of the world. There is a withdrawal even from the joys of this world. It is literally a path of extreme. Look at the, the, Naz the Nazarite vow. Is it, a path? it is a path of extreme. It is seclusion. It is quietness. It is wholehearted pursuit of moral perfection, spending time with God, praying to the Lord, seeking the face of God. And you got to do that all alone and in every religion and every sect there is some elements of this and Christianity is no exception and that's why we take these retreats and we seek after God but on the other hand there is the sage and the sage is very different the sage immerses himself in the middle path he seeks to be balanced in what he does he seeks after God but he also wants to contribute to the world that God has created he is in the world but he's not of the world he doesn't embrace poverty neither does he seek to be rich he participates in the affairs of this world he's day and day out in the marketplace he engages he wants to influence and he seeks to be relevant now let me tell you these are not just two types of people these are literally two ways of life and can I say this to you 
These two ways of life are mutually exclusive. If you want to be a saint, you cannot be a sage. If you want to be a sage, you cannot be a saint. They, are, they, are, they, they just don't come in together because to be a saint, you must seclude yourself. You must separate your path from where the world goes at. But again, society cannot be built by saints because saints have chosen to separate themselves from society. But guess what? Jesus calls us to be in the world, not to escape from it. He calls us to fight the fights of the world, to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth. It's a vivid representation of our participation in the very affairs of this world. And I want to say this, this is a struggle that all of us fight with. You know, I've been thinking a lot over the last couple of months, you know, and I've kind of formulated what I want to do when my season is done here in Cornerstone. I'm thinking very fast, okay? Maybe not that fast, you know? But you know, this is what I decided, this is what I want to do, okay? My kids have grown up, I sell my house, distribute uh, something to all of them. Me and my wife, we're going to move somewhere, maybe to the States or UK, move out to the mountain, live all alone, have nobody around us, cut off internet connection, have a little vegetable patch, let her plant her own vegetables, just live all alone. I don't want to be near anyone. Any, you know what I want to do? I want to pray. I want to seek God. I want to study the Bible. I want to write books. You know, I just want to pursue and give my life to God. That's a path of a saint. And I think that in all of us, there is something in us that longs for the life of the saint, isn't it? I mean, how many times have we said, God, I just want to be close to you. I want to be nearer to you. And the saint is an aspiration. But yet at the same time, there's something that pulls us. Our family requires us. The needs of the people are there. You know, and society, ourselves, the church, the people, you know, that we have so many other responsibilities that are rooted here. You know, we, we have full time, about almost 100 full time staff. And many times the staff come to ask me and say, you know, and they say this to me, Pastor Lee, when we sign up for full time, we just wanted to serve God. But you know, every day I'm doing admin, I'm answering phone calls, I do counseling, I throw rubbish, I move chairs, you know. <laughs> what happened to my dream about serving God? You see, this struggle is real, it's there. And therefore, the law of the Nazarite gives us a solution. You know what the solution is? The solution is the Nazarite vow is only for a moment. There are seasons where we need to take a Nazarite vow, come aside, pursue the path of the same. But you know what? At the end of the pursuit, you must pay a sin offering. Because in pursuing God, you gave up your responsibility to the world and you must atone for that. You can go up the mountain and you must get up to the mountain but you cannot stay in the mountain. You see, that's what the law tells us. The psalmist says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. You see, these struggles, God knows. He has an answer for us and it's in his laws. And you've got to see past beyond the commandments, do this, do that, do that. Ah, blah, blah, blah. No, there is something there for us. And we need to find, we need to see. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. I won't bring this to a close. Amen. I think that there's some people in this place, you need to hear this thing about the saint and the sage. I think there's some people standing right here watching from home. God is asking you, will you take a vow of the Nazarite for a week, for three days, for a month? I don't know. Some of us, we really need to take that time and go pursue the Lord. Some of you, it might be three months off in the Bible College of Wales. Right? But then you must come back. You must come up. You must go where the people are. You must go where the needs are. You must go where the tears are being shed. Because it's the path 
a, a path of the saint and the sage that we take time in our lives for each of them and understanding what it is. But not just that, to, to see when you read the Word of God, to know that there is a wealth that is there. I want to pray for all of us. If you just bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank You, Lord, that truly there are wondrous things found in Thy Word and we have not yet pursued. If there is laziness on our part, if there's an unwillingness, Lord, there is a, a lackadaxity, Lord, in the way that we've approached Your Word. Father, forgive us, Lord, because You have said to us so clearly, that all that you've given us in thy word is going to open our eyes, it's going to make us wise, it's going to revive us, it's going to put joy in us. And yet, we've gone around pursuing so many other things for those things that we are seeking. And yet, it is in thy word that we may find it, Lord. Father, recalibrate us. Open our eyes again. Help us to see. Put a hunger, Lord, today. Father, I remember when Pastor Nikki's dad used to tell me, Lib, I wake up every morning and I am hungry. I'm not hungry for breakfast. I'm hungry for God's Word. I pray, God, that you would put that hunger in our hearts that when we wake up in the morning, there would be such a hunger for your Word, for you, O oh Lord, to know you, O oh God. Father, we just pray, touch our hearts today, Lord. I bless my brothers and my sisters. I now speak thy blessings over them, the blessings of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you now and forevermore. And everybody say, Amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a clap offering, shall we? listen to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.